This is Faith in Action, the program that looks at how ordinary people are putting their faith into action in their everyday lives. Faith in Action is produced by Catholic Radio Indy. It covers a wide variety of guests and topics. If you have any comments or suggestions for the program, please contact Bridget. That's B-R-I-G-I-D, Bridget, at catholicradioindy.org or call us at 317-870-8400. And now, here's today's edition of Faith in Action. This is Faith in Action on Catholic Radio. I'm Jim Gamley. Our co-host is Bridget Ayer. Hey, Jim. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being with us today. And we've got a, a great guest, a guest that people will be familiar with from listening to EWTN. Dr. David Andrews is our guest. And uh, before we get to our program, we're going to put Dr. Andrews on the spot. We always like to begin our program with a little bit of a prayer. So, Doctor, if you would be so kind. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, please help us uh, today to discuss the faith with, with love and, and clarity and bless all those that listen and all those that work at Catholic Radio Indy and their families. We ask in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much for that, uh, Dr. Andrews. We appreciate that very much. And as I mentioned, uh, Dr. Andrews is the host of Call to Communion, heard every Monday through Friday at 2 p.m., here on uh, Catholic Radio Indy. So, uh, Dr. Andrews, welcome to our program. Thanks for having me. And uh, a term that I don't know whether it applies to you or not, so I'm going to ask you. Uh, when people hear the word apologist, they always think the wrong thing. They think, oh, they're apologizing for something that they did or that they believe or something like that. But in church terms, apologist has a different meaning. And if you might just explain briefly what apologist is and are you an apologist. Sure, sure. Thank you. I appreciate the question. So an apologist is someone that tries to make a rational case for the Catholic faith, to, to show that it is that it's rational, that it's intelligible, uh, that there are good grounds for our Catholic faith. It's not just something we made up, not something we're just asserting without any kind of basis to it. Now, uh, you know, what I try to do in my show is uh, people ask me questions about the Catholic faith, and I, I try to answer them and give a give a compelling answer. But I'm not. My objective is not primarily to convert people to the Catholic faith, and certainly not to attack other people's religious beliefs or or traditions. You know, as a Catholic, I believe that faith is a gift. Uh, there are reasons for it, but ultimately, it's an action of the Holy Spirit. And so, I trust that if we can put the Catholic faith out there and show that it makes sense and that it's good, true, and beautiful. Uh, people will come to faith. They'll they'll come to believe in Jesus without me trying to strong arm them or coerce them in any way. And I I mention that because there are other traditions that also practice apologetics, but do so in a very polemical and aggressive way. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Church tells us that you know we're to evangelize. We are to spread the word of the gospel and invite people to faith, but we're not supposed to proselytize in the sense of trying to coerce them into an act of faith or dehumanize them in any way. Very interesting, because I know that some um, children that attend Catholic schools um, will feel like they are forced, that their parents are forcing them to um, believe a certain way. So talk about that. Oh, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> well, within the context of the Catholic family, I mean, that's a different that's a different situation. I mean, with, with, with children, especially below the age of reason, we don't ask their permission before we vaccinate them. You know, we don't ask their permission to teach them to read. Uh, and, uh, and so naturally, we're not going to withhold these good things from our kids. And part of the rationale for infant baptism is, you know, obviously, we want them to be 
uh, washed of original sin and infused with sanctifying grace and made members of the church. Uh, but we want it to take place at this early age so that they can be brought up in a community of Christian nurture. And, uh, and when it's done well and in a loving family, children don't resent it. Now, you know, you can have a dysfunctional family and parents can strong arm children and treat them in a, in a disrespectful way. And that usually doesn't work. But if it's in the context of a loving, virtuous home, it's uh, quite benevolent. I want to talk a little bit about um, uh, your faith life. How did you happen to become a Christian or become a Catholic? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. So I was born in an extremely devout uh, Presbyterian evangelical home in Birmingham, Alabama, which at one time may still be the case, was the most Protestant city in America measured by church attendance per capita. And and so Catholics are a very small minority in my diocese. You know, I think we're something like three, three and a half percent of the population. So I didn't know any Catholics growing up, and all the Catholics that I knew were ex-Catholics. They were people who'd come <laughs> to our church— and uh, we used to ask them, you know, did you grow up a Christian? And they'd say, oh, no, I grew up a Catholic, right? Mm. And that, was, that tells you all you need to know about the culture. I mean, it was Catholics were the, you know, were the untouchables. They were the other. Uh, we didn't really think Catholics were, were genuine Christians at all. So it really was not on my radar. Um, I, and I, I sort of took for granted the Protestant worldview. Like a lot of people, my high school days were not spent wisely. I got into a lot of trouble. And when I got to college, I figured out, you know, I need to get serious about my faith again. So I sort of dove in and got interested in studying theology. And again, Catholic life was not on my horizon, but it led me uh, to a seminary degree in the Protestant seminary and ultimately to a Ph.D. in religious studies with an emphasis on the history of the Protestant Reformation. And so, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I was studying it from the point of view of a Protestant, and I wrote my doctoral dissertation on John Calvin, who was probably the most anti-Catholic thinker of all times. Um, but, uh, but that process, ironically, had the result of opening me up to the Catholic faith, and I, I wrote an article one time called How John Calvin Made Me a Catholic. <laughs> so church history kind of undid me, and, uh, and that, was the, that was the major step. And there are a few other steps in the process as well, and ultimately I—, I uh, I came to faith and I was received into the church November sixteenth, two thousand and three. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Yep. I mean, it's it. You know, you never know when people are where they're at on their faith journey. You know, and so I think about that as you are. You know, as we do a show here, Faith in Action on Catholic Radio Indy. But you know, as you um, do your show and how people are calling with all sorts of questions. And do you ever feel like? This is where God wants me. This is how this is how I evangelize. So about I, yourself. I really I really think that Catholic Radio is the best tool we have for evangelization in the church. And I'm not just blowing smoke. I really do genuinely believe that. So I or, or I encourage people to support their local Catholic affiliate. In this case, that'd be Catholic Radio Indy because it's so effective. And so I feel very privileged to be a part of this ministry. It's not something that I aspired to do growing up. I don't know anybody <laughs> that said, you know, when I grow up and I, I want to work in Catholic Radio. You know, it doesn't it doesn't happen that way. And, uh, you know, I got involved in Catholic Radio because the home I grew up in was literally five miles from EW10 Global Catholic Radio Network. But I did not know that it existed. I mean, not, not being Catholic, I had no reason to know about it. And so I was 33 years old before I learned about EWTN, even though it was literally a stone's throw from my house. And I bought a house on the same street that I grew up on. And uh, I was listening to Catholic Radio in my car. <clears throat> I found Catholic Radio before I was Catholic, but I was kind of interested in becoming Catholic. And I heard Marcus Grodi in a rebroadcast of the coming of the journey home. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, that's what I need. I need to talk to a convert. 
I really need to speak to somebody who, who was Protestant who's now become Catholic. So I called up the Coming Home Network, and I said, I live in Birmingham, Alabama. I need you guys to put me in touch with a convert who can t- answer questions about the Catholic faith for me. They said, have you ever heard of EWTN? I had no idea I was listening to an EWTN program. I said, no, I've never heard of it. They said, it's in your backyard. <laughs> so they sent me out there. And one thing led to another, and I did eventually become Catholic, but I started going to the network not to do radio, but to receive the sacraments, because the Franciscan friars are out there, priests out there. I would go to Mass, I'd go to confession. And uh, eventually I decided to uh, sign up for the Mass choir. I used to, used to be a tenor back in the day, and I sang in the EWTN choir, and I found myself singing next to Adrian Price, who uh, mm-hmm. Tom Price is the program director, so I was singing next to the program director's wife. And she said to me one day, don't you want to go on... Marcus Grodi's show, and I said, I'm, I'm game. So in 2010, I was on The Journey Home, and that went down pretty well, and it led to, you know, invitations to be on Catholic Answers and other shows, and eventually I, I started doing radio regularly with EWTN, first with the Open Line program in 2012, did that for a couple of years, and then uh, Called to Union started, I think, in 2014. So it was it was an organic development, and people have said to me, you know, what, what do you do if you want to get into Catholic radio? I said, it's very simple. Go get a Ph.D. in theology, move five miles away from the largest <laughs> religious broadcaster in the world, and start singing next to the program director's wife. You know, it's just a piece of cake. Um, <laughs> and so, it was all planned, right? So, uh, you know, not by me, but in divine providence, like, you couldn't make this stuff up, right? I mean, it's, it was a trajectory that I could never have anticipated, and I feel an unbelievable gratitude for the opportunity I, I i really deeply appreciate everyone at ewtn my colleague tom price uh the administration uh of the network all the people that i work with they're fantastic um it's been professionally just the greatest experience of my life and i'm i'm grateful for it every day well every time i listen to you I'm, it's always i'm you're always so joyful and so calm um, we're talking th- with Dr. David Anders. He is the EWTN host of Call to Communion. And I was wondering um, about that show. Is that really geared? I know it's geared to, for non-Catholics, but is the goal kind of more um, to educate pretty much anyone about the Catholic faith, or is it more geared towards Call to Communion? Talk about the title. Well, sure. So, you know, I mean, I think statistically most listeners to Catholic radio are Catholic, uh, but we always have a significant number of non-Catholics that listen. And so we know, who, we know who our audience is. We know who we're going to be speaking to. But genuinely, we do want to talk to non-Catholics. Now, we, we don't dissuade Catholics from calling in, obviously, and they have questions about the faith as well, and often questions about how to talk to their Protestant or non-Catholic neighbors. Uh, but, the, but the most exciting thing is when we get a non-Catholic who may even be hostile to the faith mm-hmm. that we can disabuse and bring along. And we've, I mean, I've seen that over the years. I've seen people begin to call the show uh, with a real hostility to the Catholic faith. And then a year later, we learn that they're, they're in RCA and being received at the Church at Easter. That, to me, is the biggest thrill of all. I was going to ask you how you deal with <clears throat> hostile questions. I'm sure there are some people that have got carefully crafted questions that are you know, you're not going to be able to get away from this one and call you with a question that just can't be answered. Well, you know, Jim, that's true. We do get hostile questions, but I've never been taken by surprise by a hostile question. Now, there are questions that have surprised me, but they're not hostile. The hostile questions are fairly standard polemics that I've, you know, that I wrote a doctoral dissertation on. I mean, I, I, I mastered in anti-Catholic polemics, and, uh, and so I've heard them all before. And I'm not upset by them. And if they intimidated me, I wouldn't have become Catholic. 
All right, I have a question. So it was funny, after preparing for this show, I talked to our GM uh, the night before and said, he said, you know, I really want you to come up with some really tough questions. So I really, really worked hard to come up with some good ones. So um, here's one. Um, People are somewhat disturbed by the fact that God asked Abraham to kill his only son, you know, to offer offer him as a sacrifice or maybe it was abram before abraham um to kill isaac i think i got that right yeah um should people follow god blindly right what a great question so uh, we can we can uh, generalize not just the account of abraham but the character of the old testament god in general some of the commands of god uh some of the narratives of the old testament this has been a stumbling block to christian faith for two thousand years and St. Augustine of Hippo, who, as you know, is probably the greatest Latin theologian of the Catholic tradition, uh, was raised in a—his mother was Catholic, his father was a pagan, so she brought him up Catholic, but he left the church, had, wanted to have nothing to do with it, precisely because of this question. He, he found the Old Testament so offensive that he couldn't, he couldn't reconcile it with his philosophical view of the world. So it's not a new problem. And— uh, uh, the, the, there are a lot of angles we can take on this, but ultimately what persuaded Augustine and the position that the church takes is that the Old Testament in toto represents a kind of stage in what we call the pedagogy of God. That There is a development uh, that has led the people of God uh, not only through the desert, but ultimately preparing them for the coming of Christ. And so when we try to think about the character of God and the way we relate to God, as a Christian, we begin with the person of Jesus. We interpret the Old Testament from the point of view of the Incarnation. And, uh, uh, and, that, and that, that can involve a significant relativizing of those Old Testament narratives. Uh, the Church Fathers and the Apostle Paul as well also read the Old Testament in, a, in an allegorical and symbolic way. So they didn't necessarily take the, the narratives literally as they stand. Um, and uh, ultimately, evaluating them uh, in terms of the uh, the the ethic of love, the law of love, Saint Augustine himself wrote a book called On Christian Doctrine, which is a early book of Christian hermeneutics, philosophy of interpretation. And he says any interpretation of the Bible is okay, provide it leads to charity. All right. Well, thank you so much for that. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk more with Dr. David Anderson and try to stump him. So we're going to give it our best here, Jim. You're listening to Catholic Radio Indy, converting the culture to Christ through radio, featuring 100% Catholic programming 24-7. Do your friends a favor. Tell them about Catholic Radio Indy. An interview with Father Trenton Rauch and his story on how Catholic Radio influenced his vocation. I was not struck uh, by lightning and knocked off my horse. I had a lot of time driving in the car listening the radio and I just got to a point where I would prefer to listen to something that would be in intellectually stimulating and um, at the same time I was learning about the faith particularly the apologetics Catholic radio building faith building vocations this is faith in action on Catholic radio I'm Jim Ganley our co-host is Bridget Air. our guest today dr. David Anders uh, dr. Anders is the host of called to communion at 2 p.m each Monday through Friday here on Catholic Radio Indy. And Dr. Andrews, i got to ask you, what is the number one objection? When people say, gee, I'm thinking about becoming Catholic, I could have become Catholic, but... 
Yeah, thanks. I, I, I don't know if I can give the one thing, but I think I can give a couple of things, all right? Um, if a person has gotten to the point of deciding that they are going to become Catholic, they're persuaded of the truth of the Catholic faith, at that point it's no longer about theology. Uh, it's usually about some uh, some item of canon law, some, some disciplinary procedure that is hanging them up. A lot of people are in irregular marriages, and uh, that means that the marriage is not regarded by the Catholic Church as valid, and if they've been married more than once and they have ex-spouses floating around out there someplace, uh, there's a process for adjudicating that, determining who, if anybody, you're actually married to, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and submitting all that to the judgment of the church. That kind of thing is quite intimidating, as you can understand to people. That can be an impediment. Often, uh, other family relationships are an impediment. Very often, I'll get a call from a spouse that says, I want to become Catholic, but my significant other, my spouse, really, really is profoundly opposed to it, and that's a big problem for me. What should I do? That's, a, that's another mm -hmm. major issue. Mm -hmm. um, and then, honestly, the culture of the Catholic parish itself can be an impediment to people if, uh, if they come in with stars in their eyes and an idealistic view of Catholic life, and then they discover that, lo and behold, the Catholic Church is populated by human beings. Oh, my. Um, and, uh, and sometimes— <laughs> Who you aren't know, perfect. Who aren't perfect. And to be honest with you, some of our uh, sort of uh, cultural relics as American Catholics are, are, may not be directly inspired by the gospel, if you follow me. And we may do things a certain way that is off-putting to people— and we should be attentive to that as Catholics and try to reform our behavior in ways that can make people feel welcome. But that can also be a turnoff. All right. I've got another question here. I, I, I went to social media. This was earlier today. And um, and also some of the questions people give on um, Bible in a Year, which I um, questions that are raised when I see that social platform. Okay, here we go. Um, why did God create the tree of good and evil? Why would he put it there if if it was going to doom humanity if someone ate it? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. <laughs> I like so that this, question. This, this, the question presumes that there was an actual organism, uh, a tree, that God planted in a natural garden between the Tigris and the Euphrates, and the way to read the Genesis narrative as, a, is as an historical event accurate in all of its fine details. And that's not the way I read the text, and it's not the way many Catholic Church fathers and authorities read the text. Origin of Alexandria, one of the greatest interpreters of Catholic antiquity in the third century, writing about the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, said, of course we have to take this as a figure, because it depicts God as walking, and we know that God doesn't have feet. <laughs> right. So there are obviously figurative elements in the story. So, you know, if God were a kind of trickster who wanted to set Adam and Eve up, right, mm -hmm. and and uh, and really manipulate them with an arbitrary command, then we would rightly object. Uh, that's not the way I read the story at all. Uh, you know, clearly it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not the tree of good and evil. It's not the tree with bad fruit, with evil fruit. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and I think it speaks to something that's perennial in human experience, namely that many of us don't want to rely upon the Word of God to inform our moral choices, but would rather learn uh, experientially for ourselves to determine the content of good and evil, and that often does bring a kind of death into our lives. And I can't think of a better example than the teenager who waves off the warnings 
of his teachers and pastors and parents and says, you know, I'm going to try alcohol or illicit drugs or premarital sex or something to see if I've determined for myself that it's good or evil. And obviously, you know, the, the, the immediate pleasure will often overwhelm their reason and they don't anticipate the long-term devastation of their lives that almost inevitably results. Is there ever a question that you have not been able to answer or Oh, tons. Yeah, a lot of questions I can't <laughs> really? answer. Yeah. So the questions that I can't answer, I mean, I'm, I'm a historian by training. And so, you know, I, 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 I know a lot of facts, mm-hmm. but I don't know all the facts. And so if someone asks me a very pedantic, particular question about some datum of history that I just am unfamiliar with, then obviously I'm going to have to deflect. And I remember one time somebody said, well, you know, at the Council of blah 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 and you know sardinia or something mm-hmm. in the year 782 or whatnot mm-hmm. uh, they ruled this why was that i'm like I, I haven't read the acts of that council i have no idea you know what about the classic question if god can do anything can he build a rock so heavy that he can't lift it god cannot build a rock <laughs> so heavy that he can't lift it because god can't do the logically impossible all right. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you hear that one bad, you know, just thrown about all the time. Well, I want to I want to ask the question about suffering because that's a really common question too, you know, why would God, why does God, a loving God make us suffer? Sure. So, I can give you the philosophical apologist's answer. Mhm. Um knowing that it is completely unsatisfying to anyone that is suffering. Right? Absolutely. The the simple answer simple in the sense that it's, it's, it's airtight and logical, is that God allows evil, including suffering, because he intends to bring out of it a greater good. Now, that makes sense, and it can't be gainsaid. And, and you can't sit back and say, well, no good could possibly come out of this, because none of us sees the end from the beginning, and we don't have a, the perspective of eternity on this. And we have plenty of evidence in our lives of individuals who've gone through horrible things and come out the other side and say, you know, that was terrible, but I'm a better person for it, and I've learned this, that, and the other thing. Where that ceases to satisfy is when we don't see the resolution in this life, when some absolutely horrific evil happens, and there seems to be no intelligible reason why this occurred, no benefit seems to have derived. How can we justify God in the face of such evil? And even though I know the technical answer, I recognize that that's not existentially satisfying. And so what I do with that personally is I think the Catholic faith offers a couple of approaches to evil. One is the one that I just gave you. The other one is to acknowledge the mystery of evil and and the sense of confusion and alienation that people ex, uh, experience by placing that sentiment in Holy Scripture. So my favorite psalm, I think, in the entire Bible is Psalm 88, which is the most despairing psalm in the whole text. It's probably the darkest passage of the entire scriptures. The the sacred writer says, you've taken from me every friend, every ally. Uh, My one companion is darkness, and where are you, O God? Amen. Like, there is no note of hope there at all. But you recognize that that kind of lament is placed within the canonical scriptures. And as Catholics, we believe was inspired by God, validating those emotions. So when someone feels this way, I can say to them, it's right that you should feel this. There's nothing wrong with you in feeling this way. And of course, ultimately, the incarnation was Christ's, God's condescension to us to come suffer with us. It was God's come passion, his suffering with us. And, and that's the ultimate answer. It's not a philosophical answer, but it's the proper response to evil is that we should be like Christ and draw near to those that are hurting and be the face of Jesus to them. I mean, this is what was so impressive to the pagans 
of the first four centuries is the care that Catholics took for the poor and the marginalized, which they had, which had no precedent whatsoever at all in pagan society. You know, Aristotle, the great philosopher, thought that if you were a slave, then you probably deserved it, right? That that you were you were a lesser human being just in virtue of your circumstances, and uh, and so the idea that you should go out of your way to care for people that were lowly and and in mean circumstances was unthinkable, and yet the Catholic faith transformed the ethic and the aesthetic of the entire world by that example of Jesus, and that's how we should live in the face of suffering. I have so many other theological questions I want to ask you, but I want to ask you about um, your faith journey in the sense of what's it like for you to do this show that you're doing called a communion how does it impact your faith and maybe the faith of your family or those around you sure i appreciate that audience. so c.s lewis i'm a big fan of c.s lewis even he was no catholic he wasn't a catholic but he was had some catholic sensibilities and he was a great apologist once said that no christian doctrine seemed less compelling to him than the one that he had just given a good answer for right that he, he sensed in himself the inadequacy of his own response. And there is a kind of occupational hazard to being an apologist, right? Um, and uh, and it's a, there's a certain personality type that goes into it. And I, I don't necessarily think it's that that's commendable. I mean, I, I sense in my own self the, the kind of insecurities and doubts that many people have, not just about God, but about my own life. And that, that desire for certainty, the, the, the desire to have an answer for everything, uh, the older I get, the more I realize that maturity entails uh, a comfort with uncertainty. Not, not always having the answer is actually the right disposition, and that need to have an answer can become pathological. And so that's something that I've learned uh, you know, through 20 years of, of, of ministry or more, um, that drive in me to always know the right thing to do and to be able to prove myself is itself a kind of a problem, right? Um, uh, you know, on the, on, the, on the good side, Catholic Radio has put me in touch with wonderful people like you guys. I've been able to meet Catholics all over the world uh, that I really admire. Uh, and, and so it's, it's kept me engaged in the church in a unique way. And, of course, being connected to the life of the Christian faithful is where— most of my strength comes from in living the Catholic life. So for that, I'm tremendously grateful. I have a quick question. I don't know if you can do it real quick. Um, was God's plan for us to just hang out in the garden and not have to deal with evil? Right, sure. <laughs> you know, In, as, in 60 seconds. We, we believe that God has perfect foreknowledge. So when God created the world, uh, at the same moment he decreed the creation of the world— he anticipated the fall and decreed the redemption and the immaculate conception. That's, that's what Pius IX tells us, right, in his encyclical declaring that, uh, d- defining that dogma, that, the, that the, the same decree by which God decreed the incarnation, in that same moment he decreed the immaculate conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So the plan of redemption was in place from the very beginning. We are out of time. Uh, Thanks so much, Dr. David Anders, for being our guest Thanks for having me. My pleasure. You've been listening to Faith in Action, the program that looks at how ordinary people are putting their faith into action in their everyday lives. Faith in Action is produced by Catholic Radio Indy. This program and all Faith in Action programs can be heard or downloaded as podcasts 
from catholicradioindy.org. If you have a comment or suggestion for guests or topics for the program, please contact Bridget. That's B-R-I-G-I-D, Bridget at catholicradioindy.org, or call us at 317-870-8400. This program has been pre-recorded. You can hear the Holy Mass every day at 8 a.m. right here on Catholic Radio Indy, 